kind of like this sitting gig. I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, you know, I don't know how much longer I can milk this boot thing, but it's going to be a while yet, so my poor wife. All right, we are ready to go. I promised an update on uh, the property which we now own. Yeah, that's right. We have keys and everything. So um, we met with uh, Cody and I and a couple of other people, for instance, Neil Pitchell, who is the executive pastor over all of Redemption. We met with uh, Jack DeBartolo, the architect, uh, last week and, um, and uh, got some much more detailed plans on what's going to happen with the property. Uh, essentially, we are redeveloping and repurposing, uh, although it's a church, staying as a church, we're still repurposing it in many ways. Uh, this property, three and a half acres, and... Um, uh, we gave Jack a pretty tight budget, to be honest with you. And um, it was interesting because Cody and I both walked in there uh, admittedly a little bit nervous because of the tight budget that we had given uh, Jack and then walked out elated and encouraged and excited with what Jack was able to do uh, with the tight budget that we said. He, it, it, it challenged him, but some of the things that he's doing to the property are really magnificent. We're really excited and encouraged. Uh, one thing for sure, people in that neighborhood are going to know that there's something new and different going on in that property. They, they, you will not be able to miss this property. Right now, one of the most distinctive things about the property is that it's not distinctive at, at all. Nobody knows it's there. Uh, you're going to know it's there uh, when we're done, which, and, and not with neon lights or anything like that. And it's not going to be campy. It's going to be very nice. DeBartolo's doing this, so it's going to be very nice. So we're excited about that. We also are excited about um, the way the capital campaign has started. We're six weeks into this, and we already have about 700,000 in pledges, which we don't even know if that's necessarily accurate because a number of people have not written a pledge card out, but we know uh, from the Gilbert office that they are giving online. And so they, they didn't tell us what they're going to give, but they are giving. And so there's probably some additional funds there. We have more than $200,000 cash in the bank already to be able to work towards getting this project started with uh, some pretty significant checks yet to come uh, as people were waiting for uh, escrow to close on that. So uh, we have two years really to do that and so we're off to a very good start on the capital campaign. We're encouraged uh, by that as well and um, let me see what else. Oh, uh, Jack thinks that uh, we will probably start construction around September 1st and that we will be able to move in probably around February 1st. Those dates are very, very loose, but that's kind of what we're looking at now. So things are progressing. We're excited and we're encouraged. So that's, that's really good. Oh, there was one other thing. Uh, well, actually, two other things uh, I was told. First of all, some of you are very concerned that we're, we're not going to take our police officers with us, and that's not true. We are taking them with us. So they're waving back there now. Yes, we're, um, they are going forward with us. Um, they're going to help us with tr more traffic issues rather than pedestrian issues uh, at that site, which will be really good. And then um, the other thing is that this is just to give you an idea of how, how well we're, we're going to be able to repurpose this, this property. Uh, we have uh, absolute capacity for 80 children downstairs in children's ministry. And uh, on occasion, we have actually hit that max in, in our uh, 9 o'clock service, and we've actually had to tell people... You, we don't have any more room for children down here. Uh, the capacity, the conservative capacity for children's ministry at the new property is 137 children per service. So that's really exciting too. So all some really good, uh, really good news. Uh, again, if you need more updates or you want more detailed information, 
you can email me or you can buy me a latte. A latte goes a long way uh, with me. So uh, today we have a lot of texts and issues to cover in Mark. We're um, Mark, who read Mark, that's hard. Um, uh, he read only 27 through 38, but we're actually going to start in verse 11. So we're going to do the rest of, of Mark chapter 8. And I will fully admit that Mark chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in, in all of Scripture, but it's also a really challenging um, pa- uh, chapter. And, and we have a lot of texts and a lot of issues, but they're all very clearly connected. And so that's why we wanted to, to handle them all at one time rather than splitting them up into four or five different weeks. And here's the big idea that encompasses um, this entire, I don't know, 27, 28 verses that we're, we're looking at, we can state it positively and we can also state it negatively. Uh, the, the negative way to state it would be this, beware of distractions and distortions and distractions to the ju- true gospel. Beware of distortions and distractions to the true gospel. That would be a negative way of saying it and that's the first probably a couple or three paragraphs that we're going to be looking at. And then in the last paragraph, that paragraph that Mark read, you could state the big idea more in a more positive way by saying it this way. Always focus on the true gospel. Always focus on the true gospel, which is what Jesus is saying there in those, in those last uh, verses. So let's go back to verse 11 and read that first paragraph, uh, verses 11 through 13, and kind of get started there. And the Pharisees came. Now, remember, in context, Jesus has just finished feeding the 4,000 with the, the fish and, and, the, and the sushi. I'm, I'm sorry, the, the bread and the sushi. Fish and sushi are generally the same thing, I'm told. So, uh, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. There is so much irony there. I'll get to that in a second. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So uh, scholars say that this is not the final conflict between Jesus and the professional religious people, but it's the final conflict between them up in this area of, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee. And, and they come to him, and they ask him for a sign from heaven. And the irony, the first irony, of course, is that he had just gotten done feeding 4,000 people with just a few loaves and, a, and, a, and one order of shishimi, and that's it. And, and he fed everybody with, with that. Surely heaven was involved in some way in that, and they're still asking for a sign from heaven. No matter what Jesus does, they want him to do more. But there's also irony there because they're Jewish professional religious people. And of course, when Moses led the Israelites uh, in, in the Exodus, what did God do for them? He gave them manna from heaven. And so there's all this irony going on here. And, and, and the thing that we're looking at here is that these signs are really a distortion of the reality and the truth that Jesus is trying to get at. And, and we believe that the professional religious people know that, and so they're just going to keep pounding on these signs. And, and for us, we run into that same thing in our culture today, too. We're, we're interested in the sign. We're interested in a special word from God. We're interested in God doing something over here and do this and do this. And he's given us his word, and he's given us a testimony of his people. He's given us the church. But for many people, that just doesn't seem to be quite enough. They need to have more. And so the distortion becomes, for many people, that life or fulfillment or or their purpose, or meaning, or contentment, or joy, or whatever it is that you're looking for is actually found in the sign and not at what the sign is pointing at, which is God. Um, 
and, and we've talked about this a lot. I, I have another illustration. I talked a couple weeks ago about how I've got these two dogs that I'm always telling, there's a ball over there or there's a treat over there and, and I point at it and do the dogs go where I'm pointing? No, they're more interested in my finger and my hand and they, they just want to sniff my hand. I'm, no, over there is what you really want. You don't want my hand, you want that milk bone over there, but they're just sniffing my hand. Um, years ago in the late 1990s, I, I got connected with a church in Kingman and I ended up being their interim pastor for a while. And, and so I would drive up and, and preach there every weekend. And uh, I would drive up on Saturday afternoon, stay in a hotel, preach two services set, Sunday morning, uh, eat lunch, and then drive home. And if you've ever come back from Kingman or Las Vegas, and you know that on, on Interstate 40 heading east out of Kingman, you got about a 23-mile drive, and then there's a sign that says Phoenix that way, and you take the 93 south. I never, ever, coming back from Kingman, stopped my car at that sign that said Phoenix, got out of my car, and started hugging the sign. Oh, thank you, sign. Sign, I'm so glad that I have found you, and I find my life in you. I wanted to go to Phoenix. I needed to go to where the sign was pointing me. But so many of us want to find life in these signs, and, and we become distracted by these things, and they become distortions of of what reality is. And, and, and I'll tell you, I know I'm stepping out here. I got a few funny looks in the first service. Of course, they're funny in the first service, but I got a few funny looks in the first service doing this, but, but it, I think it makes a good point. Even somebody like Louis C.K. gets this. And, 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 and here's a clip of Louis C.K. talking to Conan about how distracting it's wonderful that we have this digital communication in the internet age, but it can also become a distraction and a distortion from reality. And he's talking to Conan about it, and here's um, actually a minute and 17 seconds of him not cussing. So go ahead and <clears throat> watch this. So Lewis even gets this. So I like him because he's my age. So anyway. Um, distortions and distractions. Um, I run into this a lot. Uh, uh, other pastors run into it. And I've noticed that a lot of commentaries on the biblical text, people who write commentaries, scholars will talk about this even. Um, people who have questions about God and Jesus and the gospel and the Bible. And that's great. We love questions and we have some answers and we would love to engage people with questions. 
But more than we would like, we run into people who really, they're just, that's all they're about is the questions. They always have another question. No answer that you can give to them, just like Jesus, no sign that he can give to the professional religious people, no answer that you can give to them will ever be enough. In fact, if you study communication and, and you understand what's going on with certain nonverbal cues, you know that the person will ask you a question and as you're answering it, you know that they're really not listening to your answer. Instead, they're just formulating the next question because the game for them is about having another question and a continued distraction and a continued distortion. Question after question after question and James Edwards comes along and he says, you know, a faith that demands proof is no faith at all. At some point, you're just going to have to step out on faith. And the funny thing is, is that we do this in other areas of our lives. We take so many other things in our faith, in, in our lives on faith, and we depend on, on, on things that are going to happen based on faith, and we're okay with that. Like when we turn a switch, the light's going to come on. Not everyone in here understands how electricity actually does work, but we have faith that the, the, the switch is going to go on, that the email is going to get sent, that somebody's going to stop at that red light, you know, if you're not in Tempe or whatever, you know, it, you have faith that these things are going to happen. But when it comes to this, suddenly we want to have absolute uh, irrefutable proof, and, and that's not faith at all. And so Jesus gets exasperated. He, it says here that he sighs, and the Greek word there for sighs indicates that he is exasperated, he's frustrated, but also that there's a sense of resolve in him. He, he, know, he knows right now, we're going to see this later, he knows he's turning for Jerusalem very shortly, and he's going to go and be crucified, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be humiliated, that he's, that he, that he's going to go for, to a very difficult thing that is coming his way, and he is resolved to do that. It, it's kind of interesting, it's, it's, it's like Jesus is saying, what more do these people want? I mean, I've, I've exercised demons. I've, I've healed people with impossible physical challenges. I have fed people with virtually nothing. What more do they want? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll get crucified. I'll be killed. They'll, they'll prove that I was dead. They're going to run me through with a sword. And then I'm going to get up three days later, and I'm going to walk away from the grave. But even that, as we know, even... For some people, a dead man rising is not proof enough, is not enough of a sign for people to say, okay, now I can believe. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, folly to Gentiles. It's not pragmatic. They're looking for what's pragmatic. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then you look at this next passage about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, of, of Herod. And, and I would call that the leaven of distortion and distraction. Uh, we all have leaven in our lives. It's different, but we all have this leaven that distorts and distracts from the true gospel. And, and Jesus warns his disciples about it. So they're on the boat and they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them on the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And, and he asked them seven deeply stinging, cutting, confrontational questions. He, he's, he's exasperated with them, too. 
They've been walking with him for more than two years now, and they still don't get it. And he asks these seven questions. He says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, signs often distort and distract rather than clarify, but also it's the same for teachings and traditions and pragmatism. Now, now I'm not... I'm not bagging on teaching and tradition. In fact, I like good teaching, and I love traditions. I think that they're very important. But the minute we begin to value certain teachings or certain traditions over the righteousness of Christ, that's when we get, it, we get into trouble. That's where heresies develop. Uh, Mike Baird, who is a PhD in New Testament studies, he worked for about 40 years at Grand Canyon University teaching Bible there. He also is so good in, in New Testament Greek that he wrote a textbook on New Testament Greek. He said, here's a definition of heresy, or here's a definition of false teaching in the church. Heresy is any teaching, even a good teaching, elevated above the righteousness of Christ in importance. So, so you can come along and say, well, what's your stance on baptism? And, and, if, and if that's more important to you than who Christ is and the righteousness of Christ, you have made baptism or your view of baptism actually a heresy. What's your view on end times? Are you premillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial, amillennial, whatever, whatever that is? Panmillennial means it'll all pan out in the end. That's what I am. It, it, what, are, what, what is your view on the eschatology? And if that's all you ever want to talk about and you never want to get to the righteousness of Christ, then your eschatology has become a heresy. Your, your, your soteriology, how you've been saved, if that becomes more important than who Jesus is, that can even become a heresy. And, and here's where this gets really hard. This is going to be some really challenging teaching this morning, I just want to tell you. And here's where it can get really hard. Good teaching and fine traditions can also be covers for men and women who are trying to build kingdoms of their own rather than participating in the kingdom of God that Jesus has already come to start establishing. And that happens all the time. It happened in the first century, it happened in the 10th century, and it's happening in the 21st century. And that brings us to this discussion. I'm going I'm to take a little side trip here for just a minute, but I think it can be helpful. The gospel calls us to walk a lot of lines of tension, which I think is interesting. You read through Scripture, and you begin to, you begin to find there's some tension in there, which is funny because most people originally, if, if they want to explore the Bible or, or Jesus or the gospel or church or whatever, what they're, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to find a life without tension. They're trying to find a life that's easy, a life that has uh, something just really defined and really easy to follow, and that's it, and I have no tension in my life. But there's tension all over in the gospel, and Jesus calls us into that tension because that's where we grow. He even calls us into suffering because we can grow in the midst of suffering. For instance, here's some tensions. Jesus says you need to be good planners and you need to seek wise counsel. Right? That's good. So, if you have a family, you know what? It's good. If you have a family, you buy insurance and you, and you save and you have a, a 401k and you, and you plan for college and, and you invest wisely. All of that is really good. But here's another question. At what point does all of that planning then become hoarding and coveting? At what point? Where's that point? 
Bible doesn't really say. And I would suggest that for every family and for every individual, it's probably different. I don't have a methodology. Is it $500,000? Is it $5 million? I don't really know. I think that's between you and God, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, prayer, your family, to figure out for yourselves, certainly in a gospel-centered way. But that creates tension, doesn't it? You're asking yourself that question. Where do I cross the line into hoarding? Here's another one. Jesus says you need to be in the world but not of the world. Talk about tension, right? Even that teaching creates problems for some people. Uh, we know that in the church we have Christians who could be defined as what people call sectarians. They're, they're Christians. They come to church and everything, but they also avoid going into the world as much as possible. And so you end up with Christians who... And there's some exaggeration here, I admit, but they, they, they say, you know, I only listen to Christian music, I only read Christian books, I only eat Christian food, I only wear Christian clothes, I only have Christian pets, and I only breathe Christian air, okay? I, and I don't want to have any friends that aren't Christians. Well, you're a sectarian, you're not, you're not in the world. And, and the reason people do that, I understand perfectly, because you're worried you're going to get all the, the world on you, and, and you, and that can be very uncomfortable if you know that certain things aren't right. But Jesus says, no, we have to be a light. We have to go into the world, but we cannot be of the world. And so you have the other side of sectarianism. You have libertinism or licentiousness, people who are also known as antinomians. In other words, they claim Christ, and yet they go out into the world, and you can't see one difference between them and anybody else in the world who doesn't know Christ. Their ethic is exactly the same. They're doing everything that people who don't know Christ are doing in the world and in the marketplace. The problem is, is that Christianity and the faith of the gospel is by its nature counter-worldly and counter-cultural, and so even though we are in the world, we must be somewhat different from the world. There must be something distinctive about us. Somebody in the world should be able to look at us after they get to know us and know that there is something different, not necessarily odd or weird, but certainly something different. But again, where is that line? Where is that tension? And we wrestle with that. With the advent of the digital age, I love this. We now have access to lots and lots and lots of great Bible teaching. You can go online and you can listen to Matt Chandler. You can listen to um, uh, Tim, Tim Keller. You can listen to all of these different uh, people, just wonderful teachers. And that is a good thing and it's a wonderful thing. But at what point, here's another question, at what point does that become about that teacher's kingdom and his finances rather than just about making sure that the word of God and the gospel gets disseminated because there are some people who are doing that. We, we live in a culture now, the age of the celebrity pastor. Do you understand that? I mean, at, at what point does celebrity become a distraction from the true gospel? That, that can be a bit of a, a tension. Where's that line? Jesus says, beware. He doesn't show us where that line is, but rather he warns us that we constantly need to be praying and thinking and analyzing and testing the spirits. And specifically here, he's talking about leaven, and leaven is a metaphor for a bunch of other things. So he talks about the leaven, for instance, of the Pharisees and Herod, two completely different people, so it seems odd that they would both have leaven, but you and I have leaven too, and so let's dive into that. The Pharisees' leaven, we've already seen this, the Pharisees' leaven um, grew out of or rose up from the law. What the, we talked about this, the traditions of the elders and the teachings of the Pharisees grew out of 
of Scripture, out of the Hebrew Scriptures, but what they were doing was adding to the Hebrew Scriptures their own teachings and their own oral traditions, and they had elevated those teachings and oral traditions to become as important as the Scripture, or in some cases, even more important. And the problem was is that many of those teachings and traditions had become man-centered rather than God-centered, and they weren't consistent with what God was teaching in the Hebrew Scriptures, and Jesus comes along and says, that's a problem, that's their leaven. Beware of their leaven that rises up. It rises up out of something good, the teaching of the, uh, of the Old Testament, but, but they're distorting it. And they're using it to distract you from the things that are truly important. And then Herod. Herod has a leaven too. It's different though, but it's a leaven nonetheless. Herod was a Jew, but for the sake of pragmatism, Herod had sold out to the Romans. He had become a, a Roman, governor, uh, Roman governor or a tetrarch. He was he was in the government and he was in charge. And so his pragmatism was his leaven. His pragmatism arose from his desire to have it both ways, as most of us humans really want. We want to be able to have our cake and eat it too. So Herod wanted the benefits of his religious community, but he also wanted to be favored by the Romans to be able to receive power and wealth from them. He wanted it both ways, even though there was conflict in the midst of that. I've run into, uh, there's a church that I've run into that's, uh, th they're known as the Church of Practical Christianity. Now, now I'm going to push a little bit here, so hang with me on this. I, I always think about that, and I, I'm not exactly sure what they mean, because I look at what the, what is, what is practical about biblical Christianity? What is truly practical about the gospel? For instance, uh, Philippians chapter 2, what is practical about in humility considering everybody else better than yourself? How is that practical? It's right and it's good and it's what we're called to, but how is that practical in our culture? What, uh, the same passage, what's practical about looking out for the interests of everybody else as well as your own? In the marketplace especially, your boss finds out that you're looking out for everybody else, else's interests as well as your own, you might lose your job because your boss isn't going to think that's very, most bosses aren't going to think that's very practical. You're looking out for our competitors' interests? That doesn't seem right. What's practical? Men, husbands, not just men, husbands. What's practical about loving your wife, especially when she's unlovable? Got really tense in here just now. Okay, wives. What's practical about respecting and affirming your husband, especially when he's acting like a complete doofus, as he is prone to do? Right? But that's what we're called to. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Only when she's lovable, though. Is that what the verse says? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, respect, see that you respect your husbands. Only when he's acting very respectably, though. That's not what it says. And culture would look at that and say, that doesn't make any sense. My husband's being a doofus, I'm going to blow him off. My wife's not lovable, why would I ever love her in the midst of that? Because that's what the gospel calls us to do. What's practical about submission? What's practical about denying yourself and picking up your cross? What, here you go, here's one the culture just looks at and shakes their head. And I'll tell you, a lot of people in the church look at this and shake their head. What is practical about waiting to have sex until after you're married? What's practical about that? And I know for some of you this is really awkward, but I have literally had 
more than just a few men actually say this to me when I talk to them about their sexual ethic, and they will say, hey, 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 that makes absolutely no sense. Have you ever bought a car without test driving it? Ah, 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 ah. It's not practical, so they say. What's practical about bearing the burdens of others while also carrying your own load? That would be Galatians. What's practical about loving your enemies? I'm going to be uh, flying to West Point this week. I'm going to knock on their door, and I'm going to say, I have a whole new military strategy for you. You're just going to love your enemies. There's no way, right? There is no way. But even in the midst of that, this may be the most important part of it. The problem is that any pragmatism, any practical teaching or any man-centered t- teaching that is, that is at the expense of being God-centered, ultimately what that leads to is a hard heart. You see in those seven stinging questions that Jesus asked, one of them is, has your heart been hardened? See, the distractions and distortions of our leaven, whatever our leaven might be, Whatever your leaven is, whatever my leaven is, whatever, whatever that is, they only lead to a hard heart. When I'm, when I'm distracted from the gospel, when I, when I have a distorted view of the gospel, my heart is open to sin and hard to the forgiveness, love, mercy, and holiness of God. It hardens my heart. And the gospel is the only thing that truly softens our hearts. Jesus says, beware, watch out for life solutions that are not gospel-centered. And yet we run into those life solutions all the time that aren't gospel-centered. Paul says it this way in Colossians. Listen closely to this. Great passage in Colossians. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now remember who he's writing. He's not writing a group of people who don't go to church. He's writing to the church at Colossae. He's writing to Christians. And listen to what he says to them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. You see, the disciples were anxious on this boat because they were were anxious about, like you and I, we're anxious about provisions. We're anxious about what we're going to eat and and what we're going to wear and what's going to happen. We're anxious about all that stuff, and Jesus is saying, no. You need to be anxious about your ability to see to understand, to comprehend the revelation of God. You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, and you can't hear. He's worried. He's anxious about our faith. And then verses 22 through 26, this odd story that gets dropped into this narrative for a very good purpose in this narrative flow. This is the story of the progressive healing. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. 
It's interesting how connected this passage really is with that last passage on the leaven that we just that we just did. This again shows Mark's narrative prowess. Jesus had just asked these seven questions, of the, these stinging questions of the disciples about their ability to see, to perceive, to understand, to be able to comprehend the revelation of God. And now Jesus encounters someone who cannot physically see. And many make much of how Jesus can't get this miracle right the first time. Maybe he's not really God. Maybe his formula wasn't quite right. And so you have to step back and look at the entire gospel narrative and, and say, okay, wait a minute. All these other miracles Jesus got right the first time, right? No problem. And, and many would argue there were much more difficult miracles to do than this one. But he really screws up here. Could something else be going on here that Jesus is trying to teach, that he's trying to get across? And the answer to that would be yes, there is. The word for see or saw is used eight times in this short little passage. And the word for see or saw is actually a metaphor for being able to comprehend or discern or understand the revelation of God in your life. And revelation of the gospel and the life of the gospel comes really gradually, if you think about it, just like this healing. certainly been that way for me. I came to Christ 28, 29 years ago. There was a conversion, but there has been growth ever since as God has revealed things to me. I didn't become converted and then just all of a sudden, boom, super Christian, and I'm not super Christian now. But you understand what I'm getting at. There is conversion, but there's also growth and there's this journey as God begins to reveal things to you. The, the things that I understand about the gospel today are way different than they were 25 years ago. And I would argue that they're probably a little bit better and a little bit more insightful. The revelation of God is a work of God in the life of a believer, just like this healing. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. All that comes to us from God is good. James says this as well. But all that comes to us from humans is distortion and distraction. It's leaven. And as God reveals more and more to us, we are able to stay more and more focused and, and we begin to recognize those distortions and those distractions more readily. And we're able to do that by constantly, firmly abounding in who Jesus is, in his gospel, in his good news, acknowledging Jesus as the Christ and following him ruthlessly and focusing on the gospel. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches in this last passage that we'll look at today, 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say to that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him. Peter got it right. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one from God. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first of three times in the next couple of chapters that Jesus is going to tell them this. And they don't like this teaching, as we'll see. 
And he said this plainly. In other words, he didn't say it in parables. He wanted to make sure that they understood perfectly what was going to happen to him as he turned for Jerusalem. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the undistorted, undistracted discipleship of the gospel, and it's going to be costly, and it is certainly not pragmatic. And this begins what is known by most scholars of the gospel of Mark as as Jesus' now gradual final turn towards Jerusalem to go down there to be crucified. He is on a mission, and it is filled with irony. And the irony is this. Jesus says, look, I'm a king, but I am a king going to a cross. What king do you know that just goes to a cross willingly? And he says, not only that, not only am I going to the cross, but if you want to follow me, you have to go to the cross too. That's the cost of discipleship. And before we get into the implications of these verses, just again, look at the language Jesus uses here. I'm a king, but I must suffer. I'm a king, but I must die. I'm a king, but I must be humiliated, shamed, rejected, tortured, and crucified. What kind of king is this? What kind of king is this? He's the king that you and I desperately need And as God begins to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, we're going to find that he's also the king that we desperately want, that we want Jesus. You see, earthly kings are really not marked by their willingness to embrace suffering. But this is how God has chosen to defeat evil and injustice. Death is defeated by death. Sin is defeated by becoming sin. Satan is is defeated by embracing what Satan would find ridiculous. And we would never find this pragmatic. There is no human being in their most creative moment who would come up with this methodology to fix the sin problem in this world. It just wouldn't be done. Only God could come up with this. And I think it's interesting as you read this story, you know, Peter goes from an apple-polishing teacher's pet to a goat in about 10 minutes. It's a good thing that's never happened to any of us, right? It's funny, Peter finally gets it. He finally gets it. His eyes are opened, and you're you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. He gets it. The truth has settled in. And what's the first thing he does with that? How many of you who are Christians, right after your conversion, did you do anything kind of dumb? Jesus does something really stupid. He says, all right, I get it now. I'm in charge, and I'm in charge of the Messiah. He takes charge of the Messiah. I'm in charge of you now, Jesus. I get it now. I got the truth, so I'm in charge of you. And he rebukes Jesus. That's funny. That word that's used there is the same word that Mark uses when Jesus rebukes the evil spirits. 
This is the, this is the strongest possible language. And not only that, but in the English it says that Peter took Jesus aside. That's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek it literally says he accosted him physically and pulled him away. So he grabs Jesus, pulls him away, and sticks his finger in his face and rebukes him. How goofy. How arrogant. And he rebukes Jesus for saying that he's a king who's not going to follow an earthly king pass. He physically pulls him away. So Peter is condemning the Messiah in the strong, strongest possible way. Why is that? I would suggest that it's a really simple answer and it's the same problem that you and I have. Peter has an agenda and he has a kingdom of his own and his idea is that he wants God, the Messiah, the Savior, to submit to his agenda and his kingdom. Wouldn't that be great? And we may not say that out loud, but ultimately that's where our unconverted heart takes us. If we could just get God to serve us so that I could have my own way. So Peter gets it, but he's not getting it all the way. He doesn't realize that what he's also called to do is submit to this plan that he says makes absolutely no sense. Only an idiot would go and be crucified willingly. But that idiot is going to save us. Peter's agenda and his kingdom are foiled. They're foiled. And by the grace of God, you know, Peter goes through the rest of the gospel stories and he continues to make mistakes and he continues to open his mouth and insert his foot. He continues to do really dumb things. But then what happens after the resurrection? Peter just boldly begins to proclaim the gospel and he becomes one of the pillars of the early church. And God does what the gospel does for every one of us. He takes Peter's weaknesses and in that, Peter finds his strength because it's the strength of the gospel and it's the strength of God in him. It's the resurrected Jesus in him. And Jesus, in this moment, he gives one of the all-time great sayings. I love this saying. He says to him, Peter, your problem is, is that your mind is on the things of man and not on the things of God. I think that would be a great question for each of us to ask ourselves at least once a day. Where is our mind? Is it on the things of this world? Or is it on the things of God? Is it on the things of man? Is it on the things of this culture? Or is it on the things of, of God? Well, on what are we setting our minds? And then Jesus makes this incredible claim about discipleship and its costliness. He says if we want to come after Jesus, we need to deny ourselves, literally die to ourselves, pick up our own cross, and follow him. And it's funny because you look at this language again, there's no loopholes, there's no finagling, no interpretive dance that we can do either physically or verbally. You know, it's the old um, uh, W.C. Fields line. Somebody asked W.C. Fields once, you know, do you ever read the Bible? And he says, only for loopholes. No loopholes here. And, and the thing I love about this is there's something both universal and unique here. The idea of denying ourselves, of dying to ourselves, is what's universal. Every one of us is called to do that. We have to deny ourselves. We have to die to ourselves. Around Redemption Church, we are constantly saying that death of the self is, is, is at the center of genuine love. Well, it's also at the, at the center of the genuine gospel. It's also at the center of genuine service and mercy and hope and compassion. We all have to deny ourselves. We all have to die to ourselves. But then there's the unique provision in there and pick up your cross. You know, all of us have a different cross. What is your cross? 
What is your burden? What is your leaven? What is your idol? What's your false god? I have a list of them. You may only have one. You're in better shape than I am. What is your distortion? What is your distraction? That's your cross. You need to pick that up, and it needs to be nailed. It needs to be put to death. It's the only way it can be raised. It's the only way it can be redeemed. Jesus makes this incredible claim, this universal and unique claim. And then he says, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And whoever loses his or her life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, that person is saved. And the word for life there, many different Greek words could have been used there, but, but Mark specifically uses, Jesus uses the word psyche, which literally means identity, selfhood, and personality. Identity, selfhood, and personality. Here's one of the most challenging things about the Christian faith. You and I cannot become Christians and retain or place our faith in our old identity. Can't do it. You can't say, I am this person who happens to be a Christian. You have to say, I am in Christ. I have a new life in Him who also happens to do this or be this. It doesn't matter what identity we're talking about either. They're all fair game for this. They all have to be submitted to who Christ is. It can be your race. It can be your culture. It can be your traditions. It can be your sexual ethic. It can be your gender. It can be your education, your preferences, your neighborhood, whatever it is. Jesus says you have to submit this to who he is. He becomes your identity. He is who you become. In another place in this passage, Jesus says, what good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What good is it you for, for, for you to have this identity and still lose your soul because you won't submit that identity to who Jesus is? I, I want you to look at it this way, and I think this is helpful. Ultimately, identity is really a lot about performance, especially in our culture. You think about it. People who really just place a lot of faith in their, in their identity that they've constructed. In order to have that certain identity, we need to manage an image, we need to perform in a certain way, and we need affirmation from a lot of people. That's where we find identity in today's culture. But Jesus is clearly saying the gospel is not about shifting from one performance-based, image-driven identity to another, but rather it is a whole new life. You lose your old self, you lose the old identity, you lose the old image, and your new identity is in Christ and the gospel. He says, it's not enough for you to just know me as a good teacher or, or as an axiom, but rather you have to take my life. And the reason we do that is because he went to the cross and lost his identity on behalf of us and for us. He was God and went to the cross and he became sin so that you and I might be able to have his identity and his life. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in Philippians 3, he says it this way, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to share in his sufferings, and I want to become like him in his death. Jesus is not just a king, but he's a king on the cross. You know, if he's a king on an earthly throne, you and I would submit to him because we have to. 
But because he was a king who willingly did what no other king could do, he went to the cross. You and I can submit to him out of love and joy and gratitude because of what he's done for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I I quoted, uh, we had a Lewis C.K. video earlier, so I figured we better have C.S. Lewis in here as well. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this, and I love this, and I'll end with this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look at yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Let me pray, and we'll come to our time of response. Lord God, thank you for your word and its truth, and especially these challenging truths that we find in this passage in Mark chapter 8. And it is our prayer, God, that, that you would just give us the courage to see the truth of this and be willing to embrace it and to open our eyes and to clean out our ears and to have the revelation of your truth and your true gospel given to us that we might live by it. God, we ask that by the power of your Son, and we ask it in his name. Amen.